difference does it make in your life, in your relationships, and especially at work? What difference does it make that you're a Christian? Isn't that the real question? For all believers everywhere at all times, we, we've got to ask and answer that question. We are called upon to respond to culture. We're called upon to respond to ridicule or pressure or heartache in our lives. And, and maybe in the workplace, you're experiencing pressure of different kinds. So the question is, what difference does it make in that situation that you're a Christian? Uh, to put it another way, how are you behaving, responding, and reacting differently because you're a follower of Christ than someone who doesn't know Christ? in that same situation. What, what difference does it make that you're a Christian? And this really strikes home for those of us who maybe we work in a, in a job where maybe we might be the only believer in that, on that staff or in that office or on that job or in that workplace. And it hits us every day, that question, what, what difference does it make? And, and along with that, if you face unfairness and justice on the job, how do you respond to that? Uh, Jessica Tapia was a phys ed teacher in California and she was released from her job uh, this past January, at the end of January 2023, she was released from her job. And the reason she was released from her job is because she could not comply with the school system and the state when they dictated that if a student came to her and requested to be to and told her that they were going to change their gender or requested to be addressed by different pronouns, uh, the state of North uh, California required her to hide that from her parent, from the child's parents. She said she couldn't do that. A second thing is, as a physical education teacher, uh, she said she could not permit men, boys, into the ladies' locker room that someone with full male anatomy she would not permit into the ladies' locker room. Both of these things were required of her now uh, in the state of California. And the reason she said she could not do that is because she is a born-again Christian, and it violates her Christian values. Uh, Jessica said, I essentially had to pick one. I'm either going to obey the district in the directive that's not lining up with my beliefs, convictions, and faith, or I'm going to stay true, choose my faith, choose to be obedient to the way the Lord has called me to live. She said, and so it was crazy to be in a position where I realized that I could not be a Christian and be a teacher at the same time. Incidentally, when the school district communicated that she would be released from her job for these reasons, they stated clearly in their letter to her, because of your religious convictions, you cannot be dishonest to parents, among the other reasons they gave for releasing her. In other words, we want you to lie, and because you're a Christian, you won't do it. What difference does it make in your job, in your employment, in your family, in your school? What, what difference does it make in your relationships that you're a Christian? And when you face injustice on the job, what stand are you going to take? If it's an either-or situation, either I serve Christ or I keep this job, what are you going to do? 
This morning we return to the book of 1 Peter. If you have your Bible, go ahead and find 1 Peter and chapter 2. We'll pick up where we left off in just a few minutes at verse 18. Just hold your place there for a second. But you'll remember last week, uh, Peter started addressing the Christians in exile, being persecuted and pressured for their faith. He began addressing them uh, with the principle of submission. The principle of submission says that God calls us to submit to him in all of our relationships. God calls us to submit to him in all of our relationships. And as we saw last week, Peter first applies that to the Christians and their relationship with the government. Now, what we learned and saw and read last week is going to carry through to this week. Last week, as he talked about the government, remember he reminded Christians, fear God. You have, you have no reason to fear the emperor. You have no reason to fear the government. You have but one to fear, that is God. God and God alone should get your reverence, your worship, your awe, and your fear. And everything else will fall into place after that. And you'll also remember that he pointed out, as believers in Christ, keep doing good. Keep doing the right thing. If the culture is going to come against you, whether it's the government, or it's someone in your household, or it's your, your boss at work, if they're going to come against you, uh, let, they have to admit, let it, let it be they have to admit that it's because you are a Christian doing Christian things. They have to outright say, in writing, she would not lie, and we asked her to. And the reason she would not lie is because it violated her Christian convictions. And we won't honor that. We will release her. We'd rather have her lie than tell the truth. Let it be because you're living a Christian life and it gets noticed. It's because of that. Not because you're violating your conscience, but because you're living by it. So Peter's going to go on, he's going to continue to carry the principle of submission into other relationships. We'll see this morning the household, we'll see later on he continues in marital relationships. And uh, two weeks from today, uh, we'll see something very surprising. Peter says, you and I are called to suffering. We are called to suffering. I'll say two weeks from today, because next Sunday our Gideon speaker will be with us, and we'll be back in the book of 1 Peter on the 20th. But Peter's going to apply this principle of submission across these relationships. And this morning we're going to see him uh, apply it in, in what might be for us a somewhat surprising way. It's in households, but it's one particular relationship in households that, that at first you and I may not connect with very well. We may even be a bit surprised by what he says in this household. So look, at, look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to pick up reading at verse 18. So Peter's already addressed believers in relationship to the government. <clears throat> now he says, household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it. But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. Now first we might pause there and say, now wait a minute, what, what connection do we have? He, he says household slaves. Now we need to unpack a little bit of the historical context, but before I even do that, let's be perfectly clear. The Bible does not condone slavery at all. The Bible, in fact, the Bible condemns slavery, never condones slavery. 
But the Bible also never calls for a revolution against slavery. And this is why. In the ancient world, and really most cultures throughout history, until Christianity influenced the West, and slavery was abolished in the West, in most cultures throughout history, slavery was part of economics. It, it was in a lot of respects, while it may sound reprehensible, in a lot of respects, slavery was, was the way they believed someone was born into a job. Even the, the Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, they, they believed that those who were in slavery were therefore lesser persons and they needed to be in that job for that reason. The Greek philosophers believe that. The Bible doesn't teach that, but the Greek philosophers did. And slavery throughout most of history, and especially in the context of Greek and Rome, had nothing to do with race. People became slaves typically because they were uh, conquered, for instance, conquered by the Romans, whatever race or ethnicity they might be, and they were brought into the Roman uh, culture, and, and they were brought into slavery for that reason. Uh, they may have been sold into slavery from another country. There's a variety of reasons, but had nothing whatever to do with race or ethnicity at all. It was part of the economic structure. And for that reason, there were slaves, different kinds of slaves at different levels. There were those that uh, worked the fields. Actually, most of the slaves in the Roman world were in the agricultural part of the world. Uh, but also, there were household servants and slaves. Some of your Bibles might actually, if you're reading a different translation, they might translate this word slave as servant. Because this is not the strongest word for slave in the Greek language. It applies more to what we would call an indentured or conscripted servant, someone who serves the household. And a lot of times what the Romans would do is they would, when they conquered a people, they would take the most educated people and they would bring them home to be servants in the household or servants in the culture. That's where they got their educators. That's where they got most of their physicians and doctors. They, they literally brought them in from other cultures. At the time Peter wrote this, there were roughly 60 million slaves or servants in the Roman Empire. You could, you could walk through the streets, talk to people day by day, and have no idea whether or not they were a slave because it had nothing to do with race. There was no outward appearance. There was no ropes, no chains. But if they fled, there was severe, brutal punishment. And, if, and, and frequently the master could do whatever they wanted to do. If the slave let them down, they could punish them in any way that they wanted to. For you and me, the connection today is the part of it that they saw as serving the household, the part of it as they saw, that they saw as economics. That is to say, uh, we understand that slavery is reprehensible, but we can actually learn something from Scripture and learn something from Peter here about unjust situations on the job. Injustice on the job. How to serve God at work, especially in situations that are unfair and with bosses or employers that are unjust. Uh, Peter takes that principle of submission and he expands it. And this is an extraordinary thing, by the way. Again, the Bible doesn't call for a revolution for servants and slaves. Instead, when slaves and servants became Christians, the Bible taught them to be submissive. Not because the master was a good master and not because the master deserved it, but because of Christ. Because of Christ. As we'll read in two weeks, I mentioned we are called to suffer for Christ and with Christ, just as he suffered. 
So Peter picks up on that. Notice he says, submit to your masters with all reverence. With all reverence. It's that same word we read last week, translated as fear and reverence. But he's already said, do not fear the emperor. You don't need to fear anyone but God. And he doesn't mean differently here. When he says with reverence, he means with fear of God. When you practice the principle of submission, he tells the, the servants and the slaves, when you practice that in the household, you're doing it because of God, not because of the master. You're doing it because of what God has done in your life, and you can demonstrate who he is. When you practice the same principle of submission at work on your job, you're not doing it because your boss is that great. Whether your boss is good or not, you're doing it because of Christ. You're doing it because you fear God and God alone. And you can live your life in reverence to him. Uh, he fortifies this with the phrase consciousness of God. If you do these things with a consciousness of God, uh, we would call this matters of conscience. Or as I pointed out earlier, uh, we want to live by our conscience and not violate our conscience. You see, when you came to Christ, uh, you picked up uh, matters of God as matters of conscience. Your values now are dictated by who God is, and you apply those to your situation. So if you're called upon to violate uh, your conscience, that means you're called upon to violate biblical beliefs in your relationship to God, and, and, and you can't do that. And that's something else we want to remember throughout this part of Peter's letter. As we saw with the government last week, remember it this week. What all supersedes everything else is your obedience to Christ. Your obedience to Christ. If called upon to make a decision that violates your walk with Christ, choose Christ. Always choose Christ. Choose the word of God and choose Christ. God calls us to practice this principle of submission in our relationships, and that includes in our employment and in our job. Uh, let's look back and, and think about it in these terms for a moment. What difference does it make to be a Christian at work? What does it, what does it mean to serve God at work? And what can we learn from Peter about that in this passage? <clears throat> uh, first of all, serving God at work means practicing impartiality. Practicing impartiality. As Peter would say, Submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. If you fear God, if you're serving God, then you acknowledge that God creates all people. And it's tough for us to, to digest this, but, but listen. God even created the people you don't like. In fact, I'll go a stretch further. God loves the people you don't like. And if they need Christ, God wants them to come to faith in Christ. What if they're difficult? What if they're unjust? Well, God created them. God loves them. They're sinners in need of a Savior. But God loves them. So Peter says, when you, when you function at work from the perspective of someone who fears God, you're there to serve God, then you practice impartiality among the people that are there, including your boss, including your overseer, including whoever, your supervisor, whoever is in charge of that situation. He said you, you practice that, whether they are kind and gentle or whether they are cruel. Now the term translated cruel 
is the Greek word that I, gives us our English word scoliosis. It literally means bent or crooked. And I think what Peter has in mind is whether they are immoral or unethical. You ever worked for a boss that was unethical? Maybe you're doing it right now. You practice your good conscience. You practice your good conscience. But you still work a good job for that boss. That's the clearest way to put what Peter's talking about. You're still responsible for you at that job. You're not responsible for the boss's behavior. You're responsible for you. So you can still work and you can still acknowledge that boss, that supervisor is still the boss. So until and unless you are pressed to do that which is against your Christian values, do a good job. In fact, the Apostle Paul would talk about work. He would say, when you work, this, is what, this was his simple explanation of how to do a good job. Do your work as to the Lord. Everything you do, you do for Christ. You don't even do it for that boss. You do it for Christ. You do it in your relationship with Christ. Everything you do, you do for him. To say you practice impartiality is not to say you don't recognize sinful behavior, unethical behavior. It, it says that you, you acknowledge that God created every person you work with. And ultimately, they are responsible for, to God for their behavior. Practice that impartiality. You know, practicing impartiality in that way also helps us focus on our job, helps us focus on doing well and doing what's right at our job. You never know what God's going to do down the road, how personnel are going to change. So focus on doing your job and doing a good job at what you do. It provides clarity. It's also a reminder of why you are there. Again, you're there to serve Christ. Have you ever considered that you're not in your job by accident. You're in your job to serve Christ. And maybe you came to Christ after you got that job. Okay. But God's still in charge. And God can use you right where you are. Maybe you got that job because you, you, you were laid off from another job. Or maybe a bad circumstance pushed you to where you are. Do you not think God is guiding your life? There are people there he wants you to influence. Keep that focus. Fear God. Remember, you serve him. There's an old story that goes back many years uh, that a gentleman from Boston applied for a banking job in Chicago as, a, as an investment banker. And the bank in Chicago reached out to one of his references in Boston. And the reference in Boston said, oh, oh, you're going to love him. And started listing his family members. He, he comes from the Lowell family. He comes from this family. His grandfather was so-and-so. And he's got this magnificent herd of people behind him in his pedigree. You're going to love him. So the bank in Chicago that, that he was applying to very kindly wrote back the reference and said, Thank you for your reference, but we are not hiring him for breeding purposes. We're hiring him to work. Keep a right perspective. Remember what your job is. And remember, you serve Christ. You can't help how other people behave. You can help how you behave. Secondly, serving God at work sometimes means enduring injustice. It's just a fact. You might have unfair situations, 
But frankly, sometimes you just have unjust people, unfair people, unfair circumstances driven by unfair people. Peter says in verse 19, For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. Now we need to break this one down just a little bit. For it brings favor if, because of a consciousness of God. Now the word translated favor is the same word in the Greek language that gives us the word grace. But he's not talking about redemption and salvation here. He's talking about the biblical teaching that God gives us grace for the moment and for the season we have in life. You may not be familiar with that idea, but the Bible teaches we are saved by grace through faith, but that's not where it ends. We live by grace. We live by God's grace. And what Peter means here is God notices your endurance in the face of injustice. And God gives you grace in the face of injustice. But he said there's a reason for it. If you experience that grace, there's a reason for it. It's because of a consciousness of God, an awareness of God. It's because you are aware that matters of conscience and your values matter. And and it's because you won't violate your conscience. That's what he's talking about. It's It's a big picture phrase that refers to the fact that when you're at work, you are aware of God's presence. You are aware of of serving Christ at work. You're not there for yourself. You're not there just to make money. You're not there just to build a career. So when you're passed over for a promotion, you are still aware that God has not left you. You still serve Christ. When you bump into unjust people, manipulative people at work, you ever met any of those? You are aware, though, that you serve Christ. That hasn't changed. And when you are pressed into situations where someone may want you to violate your conscience to make decisions that are unethical, you serve Christ. And when you say no in those situations, even if it brings about more more injustice toward you, if you have to endure heartache, even if you're demoted because of it, God favors you. God covers you with grace. God will strengthen you and encourage you in those circumstances, in those situations. The ability to endure in Christ is a fundamental value of living for Christ. We, we learn it from him, Jesus himself. So it's applied in a variety of circumstances. To endure is to stand firm in what's right. Peter uses the term three times in this, pas- this short passage we just read. Three times he talks to believers about enduring. Turn that around, it basically means don't give up, don't give in. Do what's right. Do what God wants you to do, what God's called you to do, all the time. I say, well, Pastor Bob, what if I lose my job like Jessica did? Well, Pastor Bob, what if I get demoted, I don't make as much money? Well, Pastor Bob, what if, what if I'm pressed into situations and circumstances I'm not expecting and I, I don't know what to do? What difference does it make that you're a Christian? Do you trust him with your job? It's a basic question. Do you trust him? Do you trust him with your job? Do you trust him with your family? Do you trust him for the strength to endure unjust situations? Do you trust him? Because that's always really the question. And when you say, yes, I trust you, you will be aware 
of his presence. You'll be aware of his strength to help you endure. He will give you wisdom to answer rightly, and he will take care of you because he's given you grace for the moment. The wonderful thing about following Christ, is, of course, there's a lot that's wonderful about it. Even when the Bible teaches us that we are called to suffer with Christ, I mean, he, he's the one that set the standard for enduring injustice. Christ himself did. But following Christ also means we're always reminded he never leaves us or forsakes us, and he always knows what comes next. He always knows what comes next. And when you stand firm in your values for Christ, even if you lose your job, you make an impact for Christ. You make an impact for Christ. He will use that and use you to further his kingdom. So then second, serving God at work means enduring injustice. If you are pressed in that situation, you, you, you might be practicing impartiality, but you're pressed to endure injustice which means they're not being impartial toward you, are they? You might feel picked out sometimes at work or at jobs because you're a Christian. Even so, endure that injustice. And then, and then third, also Peter says, you will know God's favor, you will know God's grace because serving God at work means doing what is right. It's one of, one of Peter's favorite themes. He, he likes for Christians this is how we would say it. Peter likes for Christians to be proactive, to do what's right, even if it's against the tide of injustice and, and unfairness. He says, do what's right. Verse 20, for what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? For when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. Look at that first, that first rhetorical question. What credit is there if you do what's wrong and suffer for it because you did something that was wrong so you suffer for it now remember he's talking to Christians he's talking to Christians so in context what this means is listen Christian just because you're a Christian doesn't give you permission to do the wrong thing to do what's unethical don't be surprised if your boss responds to your unethical behavior you don't get to play the Christian card then you don't get to say, but, but, you know, I'm a Christian. No, if you're a Christian, then do the right thing to start with. And if, you're, if your boss doesn't respond, if you, if you end up enduring injustice because you did the right thing, you can know that God is on your side. You have found favor with him. He will give you grace for the moment. But listen, don't ask God to show up when you're doing the wrong thing at work. Just that simple. And if you've done that, he will you confess your sin to him, he'll forgive you, then own up to it. Do the right thing. But more importantly, do the right thing anyway. Be the best employee at that workplace. Just like we said last week, be the best citizen, be the best employee at that workplace. Let God use you there to do what God has put you there to do and do it with a clear conscience. Always represent him with a clear conscience and God will show up and God will be there and you will see him work 
in your situation. I know it can be tough. I mean, everybody does. If you're a Christian in a secular job, maybe a very difficult job, it's difficult for you. But sometimes it's difficult for Christians in Christian jobs. Because people are fundamentally sinners. Christians don't always treat each other real well. Kim and I learned of a dear friend, pastor, and his wife this week. I'm not going to tell you his name, but I will tell you he asked me to, he asked me to ask you to, to pray for them. He faithfully served as pastor over 30 years at the same small church. The week before last, they called him in and let him go. Give him a reason? No. They just want a different pastor. Called him in and let him go. Brokenhearted. What an injustice. So what does God call him to do? God call him to make signs and protest in front of the church? Does God call him to write mean letters? Does God call him to get on Facebook and run down that church? No. God calls him to serve Jesus. God calls him to trust God. God reminds him that he's been faithful. And you can't always help what other people do. But you can help what you do and how you behave. Have you ever heard of Velasi Arkhipov? Probably not. Arkhipov was second in command of the submarine in October of 1962. You remember what happened in October of 1962? Cuban Missile Crisis. Arkhipov and his crew were on a submarine deep deep below the waters near Cuba. Radio silence. Their job was to be there in case the war broke out. Their job was to fire nuclear missiles at the United States of America if the war broke out. But they'd been there for a long time. They were getting tense. It was getting hot. And the U.S. Navy discovered the submarine. Submarine B-59 was the name of it, deep in the waters off Cuba. And the U.S. Navy started pummeling them with depth charges. The crew believed the war had broken out. The other two officers in charge believed the war had broken out. And they started rallying in, in, in the depths of the ocean, in that hot submarine, in that intense place, they started yelling and rallying to fire the missiles, to fire the missiles. The other two officers agreed they would fire the missiles, but according to protocol, they had to have all three officers willing to fire nuclear missiles at the United States of America. And Arkhipov said no. He held firm. He was clear-headed. He said it's the wrong thing to do. We have no idea if war has actually broken out. They were finally forced to surface, and when they did and learned war had not broken out, the U.S. Navy was waiting on them and sent them, the whole crew and submarine, back to Russia in humiliation. Arkhipov never lived down for the rest of his life the fact that he was the voice that said no. They considered him a coward. His reputation was ruined in Russia. Forty years later, the United States government 
honored Arkhipov as the man who was clear-headed enough to say no, to stick to his values with courage as the man who stopped nuclear war on October 27, 1962. Somehow, sometimes, you have no idea what comes next. But you know this. You serve Christ. He's put you where you are for a reason. He wants you there to stand firm for the things of God, to do what's right. You won't have all the answers. You won't know everything that's happening. You might be treated unfairly and with great injustice, but you only have one to fear and one to revere, and that's the Lord your God, and you serve him. He knows what's going on. He knows what's happening. He will help you through it. You serve him, do what's right with a clear conscience, and let God take care of you, and he'll do it. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. Nobody looking around, heads bowed, eyes closed. I want to pray for you. For some of us this morning, this word from Peter, this message may have really struck home because you recognize yourself and some things going on. Maybe you're wrestling with unfairness and injustice at the job. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're the employer. You're struggling with employees that are a problem. But you recognize this as part of your life. Heads bowed, eyes closed. I want to pray for you specifically, believers. Just raise your hand up where you are so we can pray. Good, good, thank you. Hands down. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for all of us to serve God no matter where we are, no matter what's going on. And if you're in this room or at home this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I want to pray for you as well. I want to pray that God will show you your need for Christ and you'll trust Christ today to forgive you of your sins. Confess your sins, repent, and come to Christ today. And I'm going to pray a very simple prayer in a moment that you could pray with me to trust Christ. Our dear Heavenly Father, God, around this room and at home, believers in Christ right here, we, we do our best to serve you faithfully, Father, right where we are. And sometimes, God, the circumstances and the people are unfair and unjust. God, how I pray for us that we would always faithfully serve Christ. I pray for those who raise their hands here in this room. Maybe there's a few at home, God. Maybe there's some that didn't raise their hands. But God, we're in that kind of situation. And Father, I pray we'd be reminded of your grace that carries us through. I pray you give us the strength to endure and to do what's right in the face of that injustice, that unfairness. Father, we know that we live in a fallen, sinful world. People are unfair. But God, I pray that we would faithfully serve Christ right where we are. So I pray for each of us, Father, whether it's school, whether it's work, whether it's family relationships, whether it's in our marriage, whether it's in our community, maybe it's in the committee we serve on or, or in, the, in the place that we serve in the community. God, wherever it is, I pray, God, that we would serve Christ faithfully. We give you those circumstances that are such a struggle. We plead, God, for your strength to endure. But most of all, God, may we be able to answer that question. What difference does it make that I serve Christ? And answer that with the fact that people will see that we stand firmly for Jesus Christ. And we'll let you worry about the outcome. We'll, we'll let you worry about what comes next. We'll trust you for what comes tomorrow. God, I pray for anyone in this room or at home 
that's never trusted Christ as their Savior, that you would penetrate their heart right now. And I pray this prayer with them, God, if there's one here or at home, that today would give their lives to Christ and be saved. And by faith, they would pray this prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I am. Jesus, I've been trying to be good. I put on a big front. I go to church, but I know that I need to be forgiven of my sins. So Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me. My sins sent you there. And Jesus, I believe you're alive today. So Jesus, I ask in faith that you would forgive me of my sins. You would cleanse me of unrighteousness. And I repent of my sin. And from this day forward, Jesus, I commit to follow Christ all the days of my life. Father, as we come to a time of response and renewal, I pray for each one here and each one at home that we would respond to Christ today as you're calling us to respond. And we would follow through with those commitments that we made in Christ, God, whether today or in the past, that we take that next step of faith. God, bless us and may all that we do honor Christ. And it's in his name.